This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we're celebrating a bit as we mark two years online. But before we get to our anniversary special, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff postpones her trip to the United States. White House spokesperson Jay Carney claims the two countries reached that decision together. The president agrees with uh, this decision that they made together to postpone uh, the visit. Uh, and they both look forward to that visit. However, various international media organizations say U.S. President Barack Obama phoned Rousseff to ask her to reconsider before the announcement. Many Brazilians say the postponement shows the country is standing against U.S. imperialism. Rousseff's decision comes after revelations that the U.S. intelligence services spied on her phone calls and email. These revelations all can be traced to information leaked by Edward Snowden, the former U.S. intelligence contractor who was granted temporary asylum in Russia. Media reports about the spy scandal last week revealed the U.S. had also spied on the Brazilian state oil company Petrobras. President Rousseff has turned her sights to the Internet in reaction to the spy scandal. Brazil is developing legislation that will require global companies such as Facebook, Google, and Microsoft to store their data from Brazil inside Brazil, not in servers in other countries. Members of Brazil's Congress crafted a bill known as the Internet Constitution that they've debated off and on since last year. The bill outlines Internet users' online rights and would require companies to delete users' data once they delete their profiles. Activists from El Salvador are traveling to the U.S. to build support for the country's elections, which will be held early next year. Some groups are organizing observation teams to guarantee the elections are free and fair. Blanca Sulma Hernandez Cortez of the Salvadoran nonprofit called Cryptes says she believes the conservative forces are already organizing to unfairly tip the election. She visited Washington, D.C. on an organizing tour this week. In the last election, they ran a campaign of fear to scare Salvadoran voters. They said remittances would end if the left won. They said people would be sent to Cuba. It was a dirty campaign. Experts believe as much as a fifth of El Salvador's citizens reside in the United States, and many are eligible to vote, a significant electoral force in the Salvadoran election. Another postponed trip. This time, it's U.S. Vice President Joe Biden who's changing his flight schedule. Biden had planned to meet with the presidents of Mexico and Panama about trade and the expansion of the Panama Canal. A spokesperson for the vice president says he wants to concentrate on diplomacy concerning the Syrian conflict before heading to Latin America. Reporting for Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. This week, something different for our listeners as we celebrate our two-year anniversary online. First, some thank yous to our audience. We send out thank yous to the tens of thousands of folks who listen and download this program weekly 
primarily in the United States, but we want to send out recognition to our listeners in Europe and throughout Latin America, especially our large listening groups in Venezuela, Mexico, and Brazil. Also, a special tip of the hat to our growing audience in Australia, many of whom have joined us just in the past month. Finally, to our listeners in the other 160 countries worldwide that we haven't named, mil gracias. Part of that thanks means reviewing interviews from our audience's favorite programs of the past year. What we've learned is that many of the favorite programs have a theme, tracking the strong leaders and policymakers of the region. So as might be expected, programs that feature analysis of President Barack Obama and his policies are at the top of the list, joined by programs dealing with the late President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela. Even the long-deceased dictator, Augusto Pinochet, proved to be an audience favorite for discussion. As we discovered in our recent program regarding the 40th anniversary of the coup that brought him to power in Chile. We'll have excerpts from all of these as the program progresses. Not so surprising, you, our audience, loved our cultural programs on telenovelas. Here's an excerpt from one. The Skype interview is with Professor Carolina Acosto Elzuru of the University of Georgia, and appropriately for this program, she's discussing Cosita Rica and how that telenovela provided an analogy of Venezuelan politics. I studied a telenovela in which the antagonist, the male antagonist, was a metaphor of President Hugo Chavez. So that is just fascinating in and of itself. Uh, this raises the entire point of aren't these meant as metaphors to a larger political context? Well, this one in particular was meant as a metaphor. He totally was. And I know this because I studied this one very carefully. Actually, I wrote a book about it. Oh, well, I'm sorry I missed the book, but, but, but which one is this? The book is called Venezuela es una telenovela. And actually, I wrote it in Spanish because I thought that that story really had to go back to Venezuela and be read there. And in that story, the, the author, Leonardo Padrón, actually wrote that character as a metaphor of President Chavez, trying to highlight... These aspects of Hugo Chavez, which are he's very charismatic, but he alienates people. People get polarized around him. As a president, even though he's very charismatic, he can be informal, he can be improvised. But those are characteristics that are not just of Hugo Chavez. They are characteristics of many Venezuelans. So the reception of this character was very was fascinating because in a country so politically polarized, People who, were, who are or were at that time, this was 2003-2004, against Hugo Chavez, actually saw Chavez in the character. And the character had a lot of humor in it, and they laughed at the character. Whereas people who actually were for the president never saw the president in the, in the character. They just saw an average Venezuelan who is funny and charismatic, and they laughed with the character. So there was, there was a slight difference there, but very important, and everyone was watching. That was in the immediate post-coup period in Venezuela. And so I'm curious about what network that appeared on and, and uh, how popular, I guess, it was. It was extremely popular, and people still remember that telenovela. It was called Cosita Rica. And the, teleno the network that broadcasted was Venevision. We're talking about 2003. It, it aired from... 
September 2003 to the end of August 2004. It was parallel to the very thorny road to the presidential recall referendum of August 15, 2004. At that point, at the beginning in 2003, this is after the 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 coup or the, you know, some people define it differently in April 2002 and the major work stoppage of December and January of 2002, of 2002, 2003. Yeah. And so Venevision at that point, like many private media outlets were squarely in the opposition. And even though this was a metaphor, it was, you know, very elegantly done, the telenovela had a lot of political content. It editorialized. And, but, you know, telenovelas are commercial products. If it's going well, the network is not saying anything. They were happy. Now, by the end of the telenovela, when it's approaching its end, and the referendum, the real-life presidential referendum is about to happen, then the government started pressuring the media outlets. And actually, the government met with Benevision executives and said, you cannot have the presidential... There was going to be like a presidential referendum in the telenovela too, around this character. And they said, you can't have that referendum there before the real one happens. And by then, something started happening and Benevision started moderating its line to the point in which by the end of the telenovela they were censoring some epi some episodes some you know lines and some of the characters and that's when it started to the point that we have now in which Venevision is completely uh, moderate they don't say anything against the president or its government but but let me push on because because un un unfortunately um president chavez ends up taking over a lot of our themes on on this program, if if you if if you listen, and I hadn't expected us to talk about Chavez at all when we when we talk about telenovelas. Long time and careful listeners will know that excerpt includes some outtakes from our interview session, and we'll be including some interesting outtakes throughout this program. That interview was conducted before the death of Hugo Chavez, an event that resonated like few others during the past year in Latin America. We devoted many programs to the fallout from the death of Hugo Chavez. Here's something that got snipped from our first program after Chavez died, an outtake of our Skype interview with Professor Daniel Hellinger of Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri. Hellinger is the co-editor of the book, Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy. We asked him about the financial deals that Chavez had cut with China and what that means long term for Venezuela's economy. Okay, let's talk about the positive and the negative. The positive side is that they've diversified their sources of investment and diversified their markets. China is also building refineries that can pro excuse me, process Venezuelan oil. Obviously, it's more expensive to send that oil such a long distance to China. But let's also remember that the United States, even before Hugo Chavez, was saying that basically we wanted to break our reliance on imported oil. And both the Bush and the Obama administration have gone out of their way when talking about breaking reliance on imported oil to basically single out the Venezuelans and the Saudis and the Iranians for criticism there. So now if you're the Venezuelans and your most important market is saying, we're hoping that 10 or 20 years from now, we're not going to be buying from you anymore, what would you do? Okay. Now, on the other side of this, you've mentioned the loans. Um, I'm not so much worried about, at the moment, the burden of the loans. Mark Weiss Weisskopf 
had an economist in, in uh, Washington who's somewhat favorable to Chavez government, has pointed out, I think correctly, that most of the money that Venezuela owes as debt is owed to its own citizens, not to foreign citizens. It's only like one or two percent of GDP. What worries me more about the Chinese, the Russian, the other loans is that uh, the terms of these loans require that they be paid back in oil. Well, oil prices are 90 to to $100. Those oil prices go down to, let's say, 40 to $50. Venezuela has to pump out twice as much oil. You put twice as much oil on the global market, that has an impact on prices. This, in a sense, is what Carlos, Pérez, um, Carlos Andres Pérez did in the 1970s, borrowed against future oil earnings, and then the bottom fell out of the oil market and things went from bad to worse. So um, now, I don't necessarily know that oil prices are going to fall in that way. Um, and furthermore, um, it would be useful to have more transparency to know exactly what these contracts say in terms of how repayment is made. So in sum, I think actually it's smart of Venezuelans to seek investment and new markets to diversify those markets, especially since the United States has basically said to Venezuela, we only buy an oil from you because we have to, someday we hope to do without it. On the other hand, yeah, there's good reason to worry, I think, that the loans will obligate Venezuela to produce more oil in the future. That in turn will undermine one of the signal accomplishments of Hugo Chavez, which was the initiatives he took back in the early 2000s to strengthen the organization of petroleum exporting countries, which he did by calling the second summit of OPEC heads of state, which met in Caracas. And that was really the beginning of the strengthening of OPEC to become effective again in regulating the global oil market in favor of oil exporters. Hellinger also made some predictions in this outtake, predictions about how history will treat the image of Hugo Chavez. They're not going to be able to create a cult of Chavez the same as a cult of Bolivar, largely because more like, um, for all the differences, more like uh, Peron, Juan Peron, uh, Chavez is a controversial figure. I imagine that in 20, 30 years from now, if we were if we're still around to go down to Venezuela and ask a Venezuelan, what do they think about Hugo Chavez? We would still find out a whole lot of new, uh, we would find out immediately what that person's politics were. In other words, in, even in history, he's going to be seen as a polarizing figure. Venezuela is not the only polarizing topic for our listeners. Of course, Cuba also tends to get that type of reaction. Professor Bill Leogrand of American University was one of many experts who gave us his insights on Cuba. He's the co-editor of the book, A Contemporary Cuban Reader. In this outtake, he told us he was impressed by the growth of small businesses in Cuba due to government reforms to open the economy. It's, it's really flourishing, and, and you can see the, uh, the potential economic dynamism uh, that could be unleashed by the government if it's willing to relax some of the restrictions that still remain. And what are those restrictions? Well, for example, they, they historically had a tax system in which a small business person had to pay a flat fee, uh, and it was pretty high. And for a lot of small uh, business people, uh, they couldn't grow the business fast enough to be able to cover the fee. And so the fee itself was, was stunting their ability to get off the ground. Uh, now they're going to move to a, a tax system in which uh, private, private businesses pay a proportion of their revenue as tax. Um, so that's going to be a much more hospitable environment for small business to start out and then grow. And that doesn't even deal with the corruption factor that may be there that people may have to pay members of the state who may be 
overseeing their businesses. Yeah, that's been a problem, uh, in, for particularly for the private restaurants in the past, uh, because there were restrictions on how many tables and how many seats they could have. Uh, there was a tendency to give the government inspector a little bit of money under the table or a free meal as a way of getting him to look the other way And when he counted the chairs. Well, we aren't counting chairs this week, but we are taking account of the key topics our audience reacted best to in the past year. And that accounting wouldn't be complete without reaction to the policies of the Obama administration toward Latin America. We'll have several views coming up. Stay with us. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania. And three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims. But by joining forces, we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGIFT.org Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we continue our review of some of the favorite interviews of the past year with this discussion with Mark Schneider, Vice President of the International Crisis Group. We spoke with him at his office in Washington, D.C. about his predictions for Latin America during 2013. This interview was conducted before the death of Hugo Chavez, but even then, Schneider expressed worries concerning what would become Venezuela's eventual withdrawal from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. I'm concerned about the... Um, the inter-American institutions and the degree to which they've maintained their vitality um, over recent years. There's concerns about the OAS. There's a lot of criticism of the inter-American human rights system, which I think is very unfortunate and very dangerous. You mentioned at the beginning of this interview some inroads maybe with Venezuela. And so bringing up what you did about human rights and the inter-American system on human rights, Venezuela has been one of the big critics of that particular system. Um, do you think that with the changes possible in Venezuela, with the U.S. reaching out, that we may see that diminish somewhat? We're going to still see Venezuela and many in, in its orbit, countries in its orbit like Bolivia, Ecuador, also continuing this well, push against that. If uh, Chavez's vice president, who's his anointed successor, wins the election, uh, Nicolas Maduro, then there's going to be much less of a change in terms of Venezuela's attitude towards the inter-American system. Possibly slightly lower in terms of the profile um, and rhetoric, just given the difference between Maduro and, and Chavez. But Maduro is more of a diplomat. That's where his background is. Well, Maduro is... Uh, uh, I mean, let's say he's a diplomat who comes from a bus driver, a labor leader, and a, a, um, a very, very loyal uh, adherent of uh, Hugo Chavez. So his personality, however, is probably less uh, bombastic and less uh, confrontational in nature than Chavez. So do you think that there will be some bilateral advancement between the United States and Venezuela in the near term. I do. I will say, though, that the that the the nature of the concerns with respect to the American system uh, go beyond um, Venezuela, and and uh, it's it's quite important that the system be strengthened, and that the uh, the countries as a whole recognize the, the continuing importance of that institution. President Obama's trip to Mexico and Costa Rica 
stood out as one of the key diplomatic events of the past year. We spoke to Professor Francisco Robles Rivera of Universidad Nacional and the Universidad de Costa Rica in San Jose, Costa Rica, via long distance, about his views of the trip. Okay, that's very interesting because uh, just before this uh, trip to Central America, um, John Kerry um, said that uh, United, uh, President Obama will travel to the backyard of the United States. So that that was something about the the, the perspective of the in the of this uh, of this government, uh, and I think uh, we uh, we need to. Uh, clarify the difference between the two Latin Americas. We have uh, a Latin America that depends on the interests of the United States, in which we will find Mexico, Central America, Panama, Colombia, and we will need to and the other Latin America that is more, um, let's say, independent than the U.S., uh, from the U.S. interests, that is be part of uh, Mercosur, UNASUR, and nowadays SELAC. Uh, and also, I think this uh, visit will, well, we need to ask if this, uh, if this visit will redefine the, the relations between these countries and the United States and the Central American countries and the rest of the countries. Because we need to take into account that Costa Rica is now a part, is now part uh, of La Troika, uh, with Cuba and Chile uh, in the community of Latin American and Caribbean countries, organization in which the United States wasn't invited to be part. So I think um, for me, what is trying, what what, it, what this visit will try uh, uh, to point out is uh, to recall, to show the, the, the role of the United States uh, in the region. Several references to CELAC there, and some people have said that this trip is also a response to the successful CELAC summit in Chile, where the Europeans were were negotiating um, various um, uh, treaty agreements regarding trade and in other items. But but I, I want to follow up before getting to Manuel. Uh, so you're resentful of the idea that that Secretary of State Kerry mentioned um, Latin America as the back backyard. That that is a is a term, a phrase that that has a strong reaction from you, Francisco? Yeah, because, you know, that's part of a very old uh, policy that the United States, well, maybe we can call it part of the uh, big neighbor policy. And now here's an outtake from the same program, which also featured economist Manuel Suarez Mir of American University. In this excerpt, he reacts to the discussion of CELAC, a hemispheric organization which excludes the U.S. and Canada. Now, in relation to CELAC, uh, I'm very skeptical about uh, that. And I'm very skeptical because I was part of the, uh, those who uh, three decades ago organized uh, the CELA, Sistema Económico Latinoamericano. Uh, and if you read the principles of that uh, group that also excluded the U.S. and Canada, but included everyone else in, in the Caribbean and Latin America, uh, it's exactly a copycat. The CELAC was copied from the CELA. Even the, the name is, is uh, almost exactly the same. Uh, and that didn't go too far. Uh, we have had many attempts in the past in Latin America to form various groups, none of which has been successful. So I'm very skeptical about the CELAC. One of our most popular programs of the past year featured Adriana Beltran of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, 
discussing crime, safety, and security issues in Honduras. Here's an outtake from that Skype interview about how Honduras is grappling with selecting a new attorney general. This is obviously a key position um, in Honduras, um, particularly because um, of the responsibility that that, or, that that agency has or institution has with the prosecution of crime, with ensuring the rule of law, but also with trying to drive down the impunity rates. Um, there has been a push by some within civil society that that process needs to be transparent, that it has to um, have enough uh, time so that they are able to conduct a thorough process, an analysis, and a background checks of all the candidates. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Honduran Congress is trying to push a fast-track process that would obviously compromise any ability um, to appoint um, an honest, um, a professional, and a courageous person to lead such an important institution. And, and this election is going to be held not in conjunction with the national election in November, but, but at a different time? Right. So the um, former attorney general, uh, the, their term was supposed to end in March of next year. Um, because of the um, lack of progress in addressing the security situation, there was a push mainly driven by civil society to call all the key figures of security and justice to testify before Congress. So they called the Minister of Security, the Attorney General, and the Adjunct Attorney General to, to testify. As a result, the Minister of Security was removed, and the Attorney General and the Adjunct Attorney General resigned. That opened up um, a discussion about the election of a new Attorney General. The com- there's a committee that, ten- that um, conducts the process in terms of identifying five candidates that are then presented to the National Congress. And from that list of five, the Congress appoints the Attorney General and the Adjunct Attorney General. Now, the, the, this committee was proposing that they be given more time and extended time to conduct a thorough process and background checks. And Congress was basically giving them days um, so there's this back and forth now uh, because Congress wants to do a fast-track process um, and elect them, um, you know, before the elections. Uh, this for us is extremely worrisome because, um, you know, uh, under international standards, you need sufficient time to conduct a transparent process. Finally, a recent program featured the Reverend Joe Eldridge of American University recalling his memories of the coup in Chile 40 years ago. Here's an outtake from that interview that features a discussion of dictator Augusto Pinochet and his support for an assassination program dubbed Operation Condor. The DINA, which is the Chilean secret police or the intelligence service, that the, uh, at, that, at that very time was arranging for the assassination of Orlando Letheir, who I mentioned earlier, on the streets of Washington, Sheridan Circle, in, on September the 21st, 1976. It was one of the, um, it was part of what is called Plan Condor. Plan Condor, a, beautiful, a wonderful book was written about Plan Condor by John Dingus, is the conspiracy among all the heads of state of the military governments in uh, the Southern Cone, South, uh, South America, to assist each other in uh, doing away with critics of stature 
of the respective regimes. Do we still see a residue from that time? What, what I think is significant is that the government, the previous government to the existing, the current Pineda government, was the government of Michel Bachelet, whose own father was a victim of repression of the military government, and she, uh, she herself was uh, tortured, and she became president. And, and she's running again. And she's running again, and she will probably be reelected president. And she did a wonderful thing. She, but recognizing that un, that unless a government, unless a people are able to acknowledge, recognize, and look at their past, healing and reconciliation is impossible. That concludes our second anniversary special. Thanks for recollecting with us. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.